I hope you will uh, turn to that last chapter in Samuel, 2 Samuel, because we're going to look at some uh, verses there that I hope will be helpful to you to have right there in front of you. So please take the time to turn there in your Bible or your tablet or phone or however you're going to be looking at the Word of God with us this morning. I'm glad you're here. 2 Samuel 24, we're going to study interesting little story in the life of David. <clears throat> you ever, do you ever struggle with God? Do you, do you ever wonder about things God does? Do you ever, you ever read the Bible and think, man, I wish I knew more about that. You know, why did God do this? Why did God not do that? You ever wonder about things that happen in your life, maybe? What in the world is God doing? Why does He let this happen? Why does He cause this to happen? Why does He not keep this from happening? You ever wrestle with God? You ever wonder about the nature of God? You ever just really, I don't know, have these, these struggles where you want to know more about God's motives? And I know we've got people at various points on this spiritual spectrum this morning. We may have people out outside of Christianity or coming, coming here out of curiosity and, and maybe you're someone who's, who's, who's kind of standing for that, from that vantage point and, and you're, you, you have these real struggles about God, perhaps. Maybe, maybe we would say to you, we have struggles as well. We, we, we ourselves, we wrestle with God in the sense that we sometimes, we don't, well, often, we don't have all the answers. That's one of the things that, that came to my mind quite a bit this, this week as I was studying 2 Samuel 24. If you're reading along with us in the Bible this year, as a congregation, we're going chronologically through Scripture and you know, plan to read it all in 2019. And you read 2 Samuel 24, I don't remember exactly how long it's been, a week or so maybe. This is the third of three sermons I'm going to preach from 2 Samuel. Last Sunday, Sunday before that, they, uh, I'm doing that periodically through the year to, to help us to stay focused and maybe to help us understand a little bit more of what we're reading. We're doing some of it on Sunday night as well to try to help us to understand this biblical story and how God helps us to see what He's doing in history to bring about His ultimate goal. And that is, as we've celebrated in communion, that is to bring us back to Him through Christ. So 2 Samuel 24, I'm, I'm going to admit something to you. I don't, I don't, I don't do this, this a lot to, I don't know, to, to help you to see some struggles and some, some things that, that maybe that I have as I, as I come to Scripture. It was as late as Wednesday of this week, I was thinking, I'm not going to preach this sermon. I'm, 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 I'm struggling with this text, you know. I, I decided early on I was going to preach on 2 Samuel 24, but as late as Wednesday, I was thinking, I don't know if I need to do this. I, I don't, maybe I need to change the topic, change the text, because 2 Samuel 24 is a story about a difficult thing that happened in the life of David, and it has some unanswered questions in it, honestly. But I came back to this, ultimately, in thinking, as I, as I wrestle with this text more, and came to, to be convicted that it's part of the Word of God, we believe that, and it has something to say to us. And, and as, as, as I went on in this, I became convicted that it has something very important to say to us. Now, with, with all of that having been said, what in the world are we talking about? Let's kind of walk through this chapter together. We didn't read it all, 
Um, Jeff read, I asked Jeff to read just a few verses here right in the middle of it, or near the end of it actually, at the end of it, uh, about, about what happens here. But I want to back up now and kind of walk through this chapter with you without, without reading without reading at all, just to summarize the, the three steps in the story. It starts out with this very difficult verse. verse. Verse 1, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. What in the world? Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. I've got all sorts of questions about that. What in the world? Why is God angry? What did Israel do? What would cause God to act in such a way toward his people? And we read that God's anger is kindled and he incites David. He, basically, the text says he incited David to conduct this census, but conducting the census itself was not something David should have done. It was a sinful act on David's part. You may remember, if you've been reading along with us this year, if you haven't, you can still understand certainly what we're talking about, but in, in, there's a parallel account of this. In 1 Chronicles 21, another book in the Old Testament, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. So in 1 Chronicles, God gives us a parallel account of this from a different perspective, probably written years later. And in that text, it says Satan was behind what happened here. So we've got, we've got this, at the very first, first of this chapter, we've got this... This story about where God is acting in response to something Israel had done. He incites David. First Chronicles said that Satan did it. And here we, we wrestle with this and we, we come to the conclusion that God sometimes acts in certain ways that are outside of our understanding to bring about what he ultimately wants to bring about. And that is mercy and kindness. I'll come back to that. I'll circle back to this as we go through this text this morning. But God can even use, this is important for us to understand, God can even use Satan himself to accomplish God's own goals. I think that's what we see, and I'll come back to this again, I, th I think that's what we see ultimately at the cross. Those who crucified Christ, were they acting sinfully? The answer to that is yes, and yet the Bible says that it was according to God's own foreordained will that that event occur. God even worked in the darkest day in history to bring about the brightest day in history. What we read here is God acting behind the scenes to bring about the accomplishment of His will. What, what we read about in this, in this chapter as it goes on is, is David conducts this census. I don't, I don't know exactly what, what David was thinking, but David conducts a census, apparently a census of the fighting men in Israel, those who could handle the sword. And, and Joab, you know, the, the first nine verses of the chapter, what David says is, Joab, I want you to conduct a census. I want you to come back to me and give me the number of fighting men that I've got. Joab says, you don't want to do that, king. Not a good plan at all. Not a good plan at all. God can give you ten times what you got, but we don't need to count them. You know, we don't need to do that. David says, do it. So Joab and his people, they go on a you know, a little less than a year. It takes them a lot. They go in a counterclockwise way throughout all the land and conduct a census, get the number of fighting people they got. Come back to David. This is, this is what we got. Apparently this was wrong. The Bible doesn't tell us why it's wrong. But we guess that it must have been David's pride. It must have been David going against what God had said. Your strength is not to be found in how many soldiers you got, how many horses you got, how many chariots you got. Your strength is going to be found in your faithfulness to the covenant. And David gets caught up in numbers and he says, I want to, I want to know how many soldiers I've got because that's a measure of strength in the ancient world. It was wrong for David to do. 
but he did it anyway. He did it and somehow within God's plan to bring about the ultimate accomplishment in the chapter, which we'll get to in a minute. But in the first part of this chapter, the first nine verses, you just got a census. That was wrong. God didn't want him doing this. You go back to Deuteronomy and God said, when you have a king, things are going to go badly at times. You're going to get caught up in how many chariots and horses you got, how many soldiers you got. That's what David is doing, I think, in the first part of this chapter. But you go on, and it says in verse 10 that David was, David was upset about what he had done. We know this is consistent with what we know about David. If you were here last Sunday, we talked about, we talked, you know, about Psalm 51 where David writes this psalm of remorse, of penitence after he had done what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. So this is consistent with what we know of David. His heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. For I have done very foolishly. So David recognizes what he's done. And God sends a prophet to, to, Dave, to David. The prophet is Gad. And Gad says to David, here's what's going to happen. God gives you three options. You've got to pick one of them. Three ways to be punished. Three ways to be punished. You pick one of them and we'll do it. And David says, well, I don't want to fall into the hands of people because people aren't necessarily merciful, but I want to fall into the hands of God because I know he's kind. So God responds. And there is a pestilence or a plague. That's option number three. His mercy is great, he says in verse 14. If you're there with me in the text, verse 15 says God sent this pestilence on Israel. So in response to David's sin, which was itself instigated because of some sin in Israel, God responds with this pestilence. That's difficult, isn't it? <clears throat> now, God's judgment, we see it clearly in the text. God responds to sin in Israel and in David with judgment. This is a horrible thing, but it is part of God's judgment in that sin in people must not go unacknowledged. It's a principle that we see throughout Scripture, and that is that when we sin, there must in some way be a judgment on sinfulness. Again, stay with me because we're going to come back to this and we'll try to as we get to the end of the chapter, I want to show you how this finds this great... There's, this is an optimistic chapter, by the way. This is, this is not a negative thing. It, it's looking ahead to something really, really important here. But God acts first in judgment on sin. But then what happens is the angel comes to Jerusalem. The pestilence is going to go through the city of Jerusalem, which had become David's capital city. And God says, that's enough. Stop. No more destruction. No more. So you see, God's judgment coupled with God's mercy, and God's mercy trumps His judgment, and God says, stop. And David again says in verse 17, I've sinned, I've done wickedly. Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And so you see God's judgment coupled with His mercy. God's judgment trumped by His mercy. God's judgment that is overshadowed by His mercy, which is the story of Scripture, really. Last part of the chapter, the prophet tells David to go to the place where the angel had stopped, the angel of the Lord, the angel that had been wreaking havoc throughout Israel, had stopped at the house of Arana, 
the Jebusite. And you read the last part of this chapter, verses 18 through the end of it, and it's, a, it's an interesting thing. You know, the, uh, the, the prophet says to, to David, Go up and raise this altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. And David went up there, and Arana, apparently, apparently Arana's house, his dwelling place, was on a hill above where David was. And Arana looked down, and he saw David coming. And Arana says, essentially, you take whatever you want, you know. Take whatever you want. He knows that David's going to offer a sacrifice. Take, here's, here's the wood, you know, here's the fire, here's the sacrifice, the oxen, whatever you need. Just, it's, it's yours. And David, as we read earlier, as Jeff read for us earlier, David says, uh-uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to take it. I'm going to buy it. Because I'm not going to offer God something that doesn't cost me anything. David offers a sacrifice. You come to the end of the chapter and it, it just has this closing statement. That very last verse of Samuel, David built an altar to the Lord. He offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. That's the end of the chapter. It just stops on that note. Now, I find this, I find this fascinating. It's a beautiful story in some ways. It's, 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 it also makes us realize that we stand in awe of who God is at times. I want to close, if you're following along with me on the back of the bulletin, I want you to notice there are I don't know, four spots there where you can write down some of these observations. I want to, I want to share with you four different things that we, we, we take away from this story. One of them is we don't always understand God's ways. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with not always understanding God's ways? I hope you are because I don't think there's any other way we can relate to God. Now we can understand some of God's ways. God sometimes tells us, here's what I'm doing, here's why I'm doing it. But sometimes our approach to Scripture is going to be, I trust in you, God, ultimately to do the right thing, even when I don't understand exactly why you're going about it the way that you are. And we read this chapter, and at the end of it, I think we've got to approach it from this posture. Lord, I trust you. I trust you are merciful, and you are kind, and you are good, and you're going to do the right thing, but I don't understand what you're doing right now. That's what David ultimately says, you know. We don't always understand God's ways. If you're, if you're not a Christian this morning, you don't have to understand everything in order to become a Christian. Everything's not going to be tied up in a neat little box. It's a, it's a posture of faith. And I think we Christians have to recognize that as well. That we can't put God in this neat little tidy box and say, God, you're going to do this and you're not going to do that. And I'm going to understand everything that you do and I can predict what you're going to do and I can explain everything that you do. We as Christians... Yeah, we understand what God wants us to understand and what He's revealed to us in Scripture, but we can't put God in some little box and have an explanation for everything that He does. He is, by His very definition, an infinite, He is an omni-God, and we are finite, and we are limited, and we approach God from the perspective of faith. God, I trust you ultimately. So we don't understand all of God's ways. This is what David shows us here, though. But we trust in his sovereignty and his mercy. We trust in his sovereignty and mercy. David says, I don't want to fall into the hands of people. 
I want to fall into the hands of God because I know that ultimately he will do what is right and it will be, it will be motivated by his mercy. He is in control. He can even work through Satan. And this is a powerful thing for us to understand. If you compare 2 Samuel 24 verse 1 that says God incited David and you look at 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 1 and it says that Satan was behind this, here's what we know from this. God can even use the evil do deeds of Satan to bring about the accomplishment of his will. If God can do that, there is nothing he cannot do. If God can use even the evil deeds, then I know God's going to do the right thing ultimately. And God, there's nothing, there's nothing that God cannot do to bring about his will. So we, we don't understand everything God does, but we trust in His sovereignty. He can do whatever He pleases to do. And His mercy, whatever He does, will ultimately be consistent with His will, which is best for us. We trust in that. You know, I think, there's this third observation here, that we learned something about David. Um, th this chapter, by the way, 2 Samuel 24, last chapter in Samuel, this, in a way, is a summary of David. This is not a chronological thing. This is, this, uh, by, because of several different things, this doesn't happen like at this particular time. This isn't a chronological way. Uh, this chapter doesn't come at this point in David's life. It is a summary chapter. And what it does is it shows us that David is the kind of person through whom God can work to accomplish his will because David has a heart that is God-focused. And so we see David's response here is one of penitence. He trusts in the mercy of God. He recognizes that he has done wrong. And I love that verse. You know, we talked about it a couple of times. David says, I'm not going to offer a burnt offering I didn't pay for. And in a way, he prefigures what we learn through Jesus, and that is... That is, if you follow Christ, Jesus says this explicitly several different times, if you follow Christ, you must be willing to give Him everything that you got, everything that you are. Following Christ is not something we do half-heartedly. We give Him everything that we are. Now, one more thing. Now, I hope, you, hope you'll hear this part. You may forget a lot of this. I'll forget a lot of this. But I don't want to forget this part, and I hope you won't either. There's something here that when you study this text, I think it's a pretty powerful thing. And ultimately, this is where, this is where the biblical narrative, the biblical story is always going to go. It's always going to point there in a very real sense. Now, I want you to notice something here. And this involves looking at a couple of different texts. I'm going to point out a couple of different passages just quickly here so that we'll see the significance of this particular location. If you've ever noticed this before, Arad of the Jebusite. Who in the world is that? We don't know for sure. Why does, why does David go here? And why does, he, why does the angel stop here? And why does David build this altar at this specific location? But what we find out from 1 Chronicles 21 is that this is the place that David commissioned. David bought this property. Apparently he bought not only the threshing floor, but a bigger piece of property. 
And it was here that he commissioned Solomon to build the temple. This is, a, this is an important thing. That it was at this location where the temple would be built within a few years. After David's death, Solomon becomes king. Solomon builds a temple at this particular spot. Now notice something else. You remember the story back in Genesis 22? I actually studied this back in September or October of last year. The story of Genesis 22 is where Abraham is told by God to go to a specific place in the mountains of Moriah and offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Does that sound familiar? Remember that story? Ultimately what happens there, of course, is Abraham lifts up his knife to sacrifice his own son. And God stops him. That was a pivotal moment in Abraham's life, you know. But here's the interesting thing. That happened, the text says, in the mountains of Moriah. And we learn that David, Solomon, would build a temple on Mount Moriah. And it was there that Abraham lifted up his knife. And God stopped him. And he provided a sacrifice instead. And Abraham then offered the sacrifice and here, at this particular location, at this time, we also learn from 1 Chronicles 21 that David went to Arana's house and he saw the angel at this location, the angel with his knife lifted. This is important. I think these connections are real and they're, they're powerful. He sees the angel. We don't learn it from 2 Samuel 24. We learn it from 1 Chronicles that David sees the angel standing above Jerusalem with his sword drawn. And God stops him. God stopped the, the, the knife of Abraham at this location, same place. The angel lifts up his sword over Jerusalem at this place, and God stops him. Solomon built a temple at this location where hundreds and hundreds of sacrifices would be offered over the years. But they would be stopped ultimately when Jesus himself was taken outside of the city walls and Jesus died on the cross at Calvary, not too far from this location right here. And God, at that very moment, when Jesus himself was sacrificed, God stops his sword of destruction from us. And Jesus himself receives, as Nick was talking about a few minutes ago, Jesus himself receives in his own body the consequences of what we've done. So God stops the knife of Abraham at this location. He stops the sword of the angel at this location. But ultimately, the sword of destruction is going to fall on his own son. God does this to himself so that God's judgment would be averted from us. At this location, where the temple would be built, those sacrifices pointing ahead to a greater sacrifice in Christ. You see, here's the thing that we, we, we get from stories like this. We read about the judgment of God, and we know that His judgment is real. But His judgment will always be tempered by and trumped by His mercy. And so at the cross which is prefigured here. At the cross, we see the judgment of God. We see the sun will not shine. We see the earth itself convulsing. And we see the 
hatred of those people who poured out their rage on Jesus himself. But there we see the judgment of God, but the judgment is poured out not on us, but on Jesus himself, so that the sword can be stayed. The sword will be held back. And you and I, instead of receiving judgment, we receive God's mercy. That's what David said. I want to fall into the hands of God because I know that ultimately God's actions will be defined by His mercy. So do we have all the answers? No. Can we explain all of God's ways? No. But what we know and what we trust and what we come here this morning to confess and why we worship and why we follow Jesus Christ is we believe in a God who is just and who is fair and who is merciful and kind. And so as we said before, the trajectory of Scripture is always toward mercy. And that's where we ultimately come. Even in a story like this, as we know we know that it's pointing to the cross, which is God's judgment, but the judgment is poured out on Jesus. And we, because of Jesus, receive mercy. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we, we invite you, we invite you to, to find yourself in this beautiful story of God's, of God's reconciliation, that, that God is a God who judges but he's a God who desperately wants to extend mercy. That's the trajectory of God's beautiful story. And it's one in which, to which he wants to invite you this morning to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Put him on in the waters of baptism where God shows his mercy to us in washing all of our sins away. We receive God's mercy and not his judgment. We would be thrilled to baptize you into Christ this morning. Maybe... Maybe though your life, you've become a Christian sometime back, perhaps, but your life has not been characterized by one who is following Jesus of late. And you want to come back and ask for the prayers of your church family here. We'll pray for you. I just hope, I hope that, that, that this church, we will be in awe of God. God is a God who judges. But I hope we will be moved to worship by recognizing that God ultimately is a God who extends His kindness. That's the God we serve. If there's anything we can do for you spiritually, let us know. Please come now. Let's stand and let's sing this song to encourage us.